You can turn to Romans chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I just want to give a shout out. We have some uh, friends from Crystal's, our daughter's church in Hawaii. Uh, Gary and Karen and Rob and Terry, they're here on, on a trip, I think. They're leaving tonight on a plane somewhere. So uh, praise the Lord. They, they have a wonderful church over there, Makilo Baptist Church. John Eliff is the pastor there, and I've been able to worship with them several times, and it's always a, a blessing. It's, uh, it's easier to leave knowing that your kids and your grandkids are in a sound, biblical uh, church that teaches the Word of God without apology, and that their youth are ministered to, and a wonderful youth group over there. It's just a, a real blessing. And so, welcome, guys. It's good to, good to see you, and hopefully we'll spend a little time afterwards. But turn in, in Romans chapter 11 this morning. We're going to finish this chapter. I keep on saying that week after week. But this week we're going to finish. We have to. Uh, We've just been here too long, I think. But as you go through the scripture and and you read it and, you know, maybe I should share this. Maybe I should share that. It just keeps on opening up. And um, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But in this, in this sense, it's good because we're learning a lot. We're growing together. And just a way of review, I just want to read the last two chapters because that's what we read uh, last week. And I didn't know that you were going to do a little presentation to me, and I'm thankful for that. So I had planned to finish it last week, but we're going to finish up the message uh, from last week. So look in Romans chapter 11, verses 34 down to 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We looked at all that last week. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right. We've been going through this chapter now in a little series called No One Like God. And a lot of times we live in a world that unfortunately they don't want to acknowledge the God of the Bible. So what do they do? They create a God in their own mind. They create a God in their own likeness. And you hear it all the time when you go out and you share the gospel with people. And you talk about judgment, and you talk about wrath, and you talk about sin. Well, my God's not like that. Well, I really don't care. Because your God's not the God of the Bible. You know, we don't have that privilege to just make up God in our own image. As you read through Romans, as we began this book, we saw how they exchanged what? The glory of God for the glory of his creation. And unfortunately, our society still does that. You know, don't cut down the trees. Don't walk on the grass. Don't. I heard John MacArthur preach a sermon one time. Guys, I don't know if you heard this, but at the end of the sermon, he said, so what's the, he was talking about all the green stuff, you know, the worshiping the earth. And at the end, he said, so what? In summation, what do I have to say? Walk on the grass and go shoot a deer. <laughs> wow! Or cut down a tree or whatever he said. It was just crazy, you know? But you know what? We live in this world that is so concerned with our own glory, we forget about the glory of the one who created it. And so we've been looking at this. We've looked at the perfect knowledge of God. We've looked at the profound wisdom of God. we looked at the unsearchable judgments of God. They can't be mined out. And then we also looked at the amazing ways of God. And last week we started this message, the majestic glory of God. And we looked at a couple things just in review to catch you up real quick. What is the glory of God? What does it mean to glorify the Lord? What is the definition of 
glory. Well, the glory of the Lord is really an expression of God's person. It's everything he is. So when we talk about the glory of God, it's basically God there in all of his character, manifestation of his attributes, his holiness, his majesty. And when you stop and you think about that, someone says, says the glory is to God is what the brightness is to the sun. When you look at the sun, it's going to be bright. It has to be. It's part of what it is. Or the glory is to God is what wet is to water. Or heat is to fire. God cannot be separated from his glory. And so we looked at two aspects of God's glory. We looked at the intrinsic glory of God, which means all that that is that's part of his very nature. Who, what makes up the glory of God? I think today we live in a society where a lot of people don't, aren't interested in understanding who God is. So they realize, okay, God saved me. Yeah, but they don't understand the God who saved them. So then the Christian gets in a fix and they're all worrying and they're, they're wondering what's going to happen and they're you know, doing everything the Bible says they shouldn't be doing. And I'm, I'm really convinced that one of the reasons that happens in believers' lives is because they have a misunderstanding of who the God is that saved them. All you have to do is say, name me a couple attributes of God. I've talked to Christians and say, well, what do you mean attribute? What's that? They don't know. And, you know, you kind of egg them on a little bit and, well, like God's holiness. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, God's holiness. Well, can you name any other? And they don't. And I'm, I'm not making light of it. It's just, it shows you the shallowness of the teaching that they've embraced up to that point in their Christian life. And so what happens is the enemy comes and just causes devastation because of a lack of understanding of who God is. And so this intrinsic glory is that part of his very being. It's who God is. We also talked about the extrinsic glory of God, that glory that we give to him. We acknowledge the glory that he possesses. That's what it means when we say it's, we, we give God glory. We, we're just acknowledging, we're not adding to his glory. As we've learned that God is self-sufficient. Our God doesn't need anything. Sometimes you hear, and we, we talked about this weeks ago, that you know, in Sunday school classes you hear this, you know, well, well, why did God create Adam and Eve? Well, God was lonely. What? God was lonely? You have to be out of your mind to say something like that. See, everything that God does, beloved, is for his glory. And it's for us to honor his glory. And so when we we looked at that, we saw those two aspects. And we talked about three reasons why God is glorious. And we looked at verse 34, his perfect knowledge, his profound wisdom, his all-sufficiency. And we talked about if we really believe that as believers, if we believe that God has perfect knowledge... I think that should change our prayer life radically. How many times have you sat in a prayer meeting and you've heard people 
pray like they're informing God about their problems. As if God doesn't already know. He knows everything about us. Or sometimes we like to give God a little bit of counsel. Well, God, here's what I need. You don't know what you need. I don't know what I need. God does. He has profound wisdom. That's why it says, who has been his counselor? These are all rhetorical questions. The answer is no, no, no. You don't know the mind of the Lord. You don't counsel God. And last week, we kind of ended there in verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Sometimes we think because we came to church or because we come to Wednesday night Bible study or really, we're really committed, we come to the men's group or we help in the youth group, or somehow God owes us. And so then when something goes wrong in our life, according to our agenda, we think, oh no, what did I do wrong? God's, you know, boy, I'm trying to do all this stuff, God. And we, and we get in this weird funk with, with the Lord and we think, wow, he's, he's kind of creating chaos in our life because we're not doing everything. That, that's not how God works. We cannot place God under our obligation. We can't. He's not indebted to us. I mean, why do we take up an offering? We take up an offering because it's a part of our worship. God doesn't need your money. I mean, that's silly. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. God chooses to use us out of his grace. But once again... He is all-sufficient. And we talked about the wonderful offering that David took up because he couldn't build the temple, but he took up an offering to build the temple. And it was amazing that when he was able to do that, at least God used that, that part of him. And we saw in Romans, kind of did a little review This is what Paul is teaching us in verses 1 through 4, that we're justified by grace apart from human works. Most of us in this room, I'd say a lot of us anyway, came out of a a Catholic background where it was all about works. You know, you had to go to mass, you had to go to confession, you had to do this, you had to do that. And if you didn't do it, man, you're in trouble with God. And the priest or the nun or whoever lets you know very clearly That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are justified by grace apart from human works. And he showed us that in in chapters 1 through 4. And then in chapters 5 through 8, Paul basically talked about the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and how that happens even apart from works. That it's a work of the Lord. Just because you're involved in church, just because you do this or you do that, a spiritual activity... That doesn't earn you brownie points with God. For the longest time in my Christian life, that's how I thought. I thought, you know, the more I do, the bigger hug I get from God. And boy, when I don't do it, well then, man, I'm I'm going to be punished somehow. Does God discipline his children? Definitely. Why? Because he loves us. But Christ was the one who was punished on our behalf. 
That's why we can read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30, we know that all things God works together for good. All things. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. He works together for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. See, never believe the lie of the enemy that says, you know what, God's done with you. He doesn't have a purpose for you. You're not worth it. You can't be used of God. Don't believe that lie. It's a lie. God wants to use you. He wants to carry out his purpose through you. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's amazing, isn't it? Sometimes we, we talk in our, our earthly language here and we say, oh man, I can't, I can't wait for that glorified body. I can't wait to be glorified. You know what? God transcends time, beloved. It says it's already done. Isn't that amazing? We're just trying to catch up to that glorification that's already in place. We've already been called. We've already been justified. We've already been glorified. We're just trapped in this body here on this sinful earth until he returns or we go to him. And then also in verses 9 to 11, we looked at how we're chosen apart from works. It's not about what we do. So we can't put God in our debt was the, was the idea there. We just can't do it. So today we want to pick up with verse 30, 11, verse 36. And we talked about when we understand all these things in the proper perspective, it really calls us to, to live a life of grace. And what I mean by that is, first of all, it starts with humility. See, when you follow the man-centered salvation that a lot of churches are focused on, it's about your decision, it's about this, it's about that. It's, oh, you chose God, you did this, you did that. What happens? Well, that gives you a part in it. You know, that, that kind of puts a little halo around your head. You know, you pat yourself on the back. Yeah, I, I came to Christ. I found Jesus. I did this. I did that. I didn't know he was lost, first of all. You know, and, and I, I, it's really frustrating when you hear people talk that way. And sometimes it's just out of ignorance because they don't understand. But we have to be careful with that. Because if anything, our salvation should make us humble. It should make us humble. Because it just shows us that, you know what? God owes us nothing. All is of grace. And then he turns around, takes sinful people like you and I, and he recreates them into a new creature in Christ. And in John 15, he says, you know what? I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. So it's not just a free grace, hey, do whatever you want. He says, no, there's obedience involved in the Christian life. And to be willing to follow someone, you have to be a humble person. 
you have to be willing to humble yourself under someone's mentorship, someone's leadership. You know, when you get a job and you go to work at a job, you, you, you need humility. Because you're on the low, you're, you're, you're the new guy on the block. You know, you can't just march in there and say, you know, you guys are doing this all wrong. I think you should be doing it this way. What is that going to look like? It's going to look like a proudful person. It's like, who do you think you are? See, and sometimes that's how we treat God. We look at God and we think, oh, wait, he's messing up. Things aren't going the way I want in my life, so I, I got to give God some counsel. You know, he, he may not know about this. I got I to share this information with him. God knows everything. He's all sufficient. He demands our glory. That should cause humility. That leads to thanksgiving. And it also leads to love the Lord who saved us even more. And when you're humble and your life is filled with thanksgiving and your love is increasing for the Savior, you know what the next step is? It's real simple. Service. You want to serve. You can't help yourself but serve the God who saved you. It's not a have to. It's a want to. And when that begins to be activated in your life and you begin to understand, wow, God can use me? God wants to use me? (laughs) Really? I mean, trust me. There are many Sundays, beloved, when I come to this church, I do not feel worthy to stand up here and teach you the Bible. I'll just be real honest with you. Whatever went on the week before, whatever it might have been, then, you know, you confess, whatever, you just, the enemy beats you down and you think, you know, who are you to get up there and teach them the Bible? And you just got to trust God. And you just have to say, you know what, wait a minute. God has called me and, 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 and you know, he has affected change in my life. Who am I listening to here? And you have to remember, you know what, it's that humility, it's that thanksgiving, it's that love. And that just literally, it leads to service. And that's why the next chapter opens up with Paul appealing to his brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies what? What's it say? A living sacrifice. You're going to be able to do that. But you have to first understand this whole aspect of the glory of God. You have to understand who God is. And the idea that he's not obligated to you in any way Yet he gives you everything in Christ. That should blow your mind. So at the last verse here, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. See, this is a total shift. It's a total change of mind when you come to this point. Because before you were in Christ, everything you could say, For from me and through me and to me are all things. (laughs) That's how you could read that verse. Because just naturally, we're, we're selfish as human beings. You know, you take a little child. You know, you don't... Children are selfish. They're selfish little kids. You know, you don't have to teach them to be selfish. They just are. They're little sinners, you know, and they're, they're, just, they're just practicing what they know. And they think it's all about them. Because you know what it is? Because they're helpless little human beings. And we have to be at their beck and call. 
So when they cry, you have to change their diaper or feed them or do whatever you do with a little baby. I'll have to ask Jason. He knows by now probably. Got a new one in the house. See, this, this mindset changes from a me kind of mentality. All of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, no. The glory of God demands that I acknowledge him. It's a, it's a shift in our mentality. Sometimes I hear, hear Christians say, well, you know, I just, I just feel I have the right to... Whoa, no, you don't. I'm sorry. You know, you, you don't have rights you don't you don't go before god and make demands that's not what we're called to see everything revolves around us in our unsaved unregenerate state we think it's all about us and we're the measure of all things everything in the universe is for us it's for our glory And see, when we become believers when we become christians when god convicts our hearts of that attitude And we see that the world and all that's in it is actually not from us. It's from God. And it's actually governed by God. And it actually exists for His glory. That changes our whole mindset. I mean, if you ask a... James Boyce in his commentary... He asked this question, he goes, what was the last song recorded by the Beatles before their breakup in the 70s? And I was like, did I read that right? I mean, this is James Boyce commentary. <laughs> quoting the Beatles here? What's going on? But that was a question. And here's what's the answer. Anybody know? The answer of the song was I, me, and mine. That's the title of the song. That's the last song That was recorded by the Beatles before the breakup. And he goes on, he says, that last song is actually the first song as well as the last song of the unregenerate heart. I, me, mine. But see, when we have a change of mind, when God transforms our mind, when we are regenerate, when we are made a new person in Christ... See, if we don't go about the whole salvation thing the right way, what happens is we hear the gospel and then we think somehow it's up to us to hunker down and become like these church people. So we try our hardest to be like these people that go to church every week. And there's no change there. It's just us trying to change ourselves. And that never works. So you go on for maybe months or maybe even years and you just kind of learn the language of being in a church. And okay, you realize they don't curse at church. They don't smoke at church. You don't do those things at church because that's not what they do. You know, you'll do them everywhere else, but you're not going to do them at church. And you're thinking somehow by coming here and sitting in a seat that that God has to owe you something. That he's going to bless you financially or he's going to bless you with a new job or things are going to go well in your health or whatever it might be. See, a radical contrast is really the song of the redeemed, the song of those who are saved. Because those who are saved have a regenerate mind. 
God gives them a new mind. He gives them a transformed heart. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? What's it say? Transformed. By what? The renewal of your mind. The mind thinks differently about things. That's what happens when you become a believer. What is a genuinely Christian worldview when you stop and think about it? Well, A.W. A. Tozer in his book, Restoring the, the, Creature, or the Creator-Creature Relation, says this. I think it's up there. The, the moment we make up our minds that we are going on with this determination to exalt God over all, we step out of the world's parade. That's just so wonderful how he says that we step out of the world's parade. We've, we shall find ourselves out of adjustment to the ways of the world and increasingly so as we make progress in the holy way. We shall acquire a new viewpoint. A new and different psychology will be formed within us. A new power will begin to surprise us by its upsurgings and its outgoings. Our break with the world will be the direct outcome of our changed relation to God. From the world of fallen men, uh, for the world of fallen men does not honor God. Millions call themselves by his name, it is true, and pay some token respect to him. But a simple test will show how little he really is honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof of this on, on the question of who is above and his true position will be exposed. Let me be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, between God and self, and God and human love. And God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However, the man may protest the proof is in the choices he makes day after day throughout life. Be thou exalted is the language of the victorious spiritual experience. It is a little key to unlock the door to the great treasures of grace. See, we're, we're called to have that kind of mindset as believers. Because the Bible here in verse 36, it says, To him be the glory forever. We just got done with a series on the solas, and we, we covered sola dia gloria in, in detail in that message. But this is not the last doxology that Paul has in this book. He also has one all the way at the end, in chapter 16. But just a couple things here this morning about God's glory. First of all, who is to be glorified? That's the question. Who is to be glorified? Well, the sovereign God is the one to be glorified, beloved. We start with man and man's needs, but God, but Paul always started with God. And he ended with him too. All the way at the, at the end, he, he ends with the glory of God. So we need to be clear on who we are 
to be glorifying. It's, it's the sovereign God. And if you don't know that God is sovereign, well, then you're not going to be able to glorify him properly. If you don't know that God is holy, you're not going to be able to glorify him properly. You're not going to really understand his glory. If you haven't seen and sensed and realized that God has changed you as an individual, he's given you a new heart, a new mind, that the old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. If that's not a reality in your life, then you cannot glorify God because you don't understand God. Because the Bible says you're still lost in your sin. See, it's only when we repent of our sin, when we turn from our sin, and we turn to the only Savior there is, Jesus Christ. And ask him, Lord, say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Well, why should God be glorified? The answer is right there. From him and through him and to him are all things. And if you relate this to salvation, if you just stop and think about our salvation, ask these questions. Why is man saved? Why does God save us? Because he needs us? Oh, Steve, he can play the piano. I've got to save him. I can use him. Really? I mean, you think so? I don't think so. See, it's not because of anything... In us. That's not why he saves us. You hear some Christians, you know, I am somebody. No, you're not. You're a sinner. Just like I'm a sinner. And hopefully you've experienced salvation through God's grace. Why is man saved? Because God wants to reveal his grace. God wants to show us his grace. We're saved because God elected us to be saved. Oh, you're going there, huh? Yeah, that's what the Word of God says. That He predestined His elect to be saved, even before the foundation of the world. Now, some of you may be pretty old, but I don't think you're around around the foundation of the world. That includes all of us. So none of us are able to go to God and say, oh, I know why you picked me because, no, you weren't even around when I picked you. You weren't even physically created yet. But because God transcends time and he knows everything, God never learns anything. He knew exactly when you were going to be born, how you were going to be born, what you'd look like when you were born. He knew what kind of hair you'd have or not have, whatever. You know, I mean, it's, it's just so clear. He knows everything about you. Well, how is man saved? You know, the world, a lot of other churches will say, well, you, you, you have to do this. You have to do that. You, you know, you have to choose God. No. How is man saved? The answer, the correct answer is by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved. That the very Son of God went to a cross, he died on that cross, and then he rose on the third day victorious over sin and death. Beloved, we could not save ourselves. We wouldn't make the right choice. But God saves us through that vicarious, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what makes our salvation so specific. That's what makes our salvation so spectacular. You did this for me? Why would you do that? Well, what's the power that brings us to faith in Christ? Well, the answer simply is the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the effectual calling, as theologians refer to it. What does God do? God quickens new life in our hearts. I don't know about you, but I didn't go to bed one night thinking, hey, you know, this Christian thing, I might give it a try. Sounds like a pretty good deal. I think I'll, I'll, yeah, I think I'll I'll choose you. I'll do this. I'll do this. No. I mean, when my brothers shared their testimonies with me and I was confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was by grace and not of works, lest any man should boast. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. No, we're Catholic and we do this stuff. What, What are you saying? It didn't make any sense. And I remember going back to the priest. And saying, hey, you know, my brothers lost their mind, man. They say they got to be born again. What does that mean? And they're like talking like they're carrying Bibles and stuff. They're actually like preaching to me when I come home from college every weekend. And the priest is like, well, that's good for them. See, if you just keep coming to mass, go to confession and everything's good. I'm going, you're not going to answer. Why do we pray to Mary? Well, you know, the, the church traditions, you know, she was the mother of Jesus. And I said, yeah, but I mean, when they give me answers, they go to the Bible and they say, look, here's what it says. Can you do that? Well, we follow the Bible, but we also have church tradition. You know, we, we, and I thought, wow. You know, after two weekends of going to the priest and asking him questions and not getting any answers, I was, I was really angry, to be honest with you. You know, I did the whole altar boy thing, catechism. You know, everybody else is playing. I'm in catechism doing this stuff and thinking somehow this is earning me brownie points with God, only to find out it's all for naught. It's a sham. I thought, man, wait a minute. This, this doesn't work this way. And when God finally shared with me the glorious gospel that, you know what? There's none righteous. No, not one. And see, sometimes when we come before God, we're comparing ourselves one to another. And now he demands our full attention. And you have to understand the God that we serve, the God that created us, the God that desires to save us is a holy God. We're not. And we need that bridge, that gulf of sin fixed with a bridge. And Christ is that bridge. Well, how do we become holy? I mean, it's not something that originates in us. I didn't wake up one day and say, wow, I feel holy. No. It's not sustained by us. How do we become holy? It's due to God's joining us to the most holy person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. And we become different people. Transformed. We've died to sin, the Bible says. We've been made alive to righteousness. See, there's no direction in the Christian life, if you're legitimately saved, other than becoming more like Christ. Well, where are we headed? Answer to heaven. I mean, you know, I understand, Carla, your sister went to be with the Lord and she struggled for many years, but praise God. You know what? She wouldn't come back here 
you know, for anything, man, she's in the presence of her Lord and Savior, free from the cancer, free from everything, worshiping. I mean, what a glorious place to be. We need to be reminded of that daily. Because I don't know about you, but the trappings of this world creeps up pretty quick. And pretty soon we're stressed out over things. Who cares? I mean, Christ could come back right now. Think about what you're worrying about. It wouldn't matter. It would not matter. So we're headed to heaven because Jesus says that he's preparing a place for us. How can we be sure of arriving there? Because it's not up to us. It's real simple. You know, we're not, we're not driving the car here. It's, it's God who's in charge. It's God who began the work in us. And the Bible says that he will complete it. He'll continue to do it. Do you know that God never begins a work that he does not eventually bring to a complete, satisfactory, and happy conclusion? For his purpose, for his glory. See, that's why Paul can say here, to him be glory forever. Not just for a couple days, forever. Do you know how long forever is? I don't, but it's got to be a really long time. And the fact that we're going to be with him in glory forever is amazing. Charles Hodge in his commentary says this, Such is an appropriate conclusion of the doctrinal portion of this wonderful epistle in which more fully and clearly than in any other portion of the word of God, the plan of salvation is presented and defended. Here are the doctrines of grace, doctrines on which the pious in all the ages and nations have rested their hopes of heaven, though they may have had uh, comparatively obscure limitations, imitations of their nature. The leading principle of all is that God is the source of all good, that in fallen man there is neither merit nor ability, that salvation consequently is all of grace, as well satisfaction as pardon, as well election as eternal glory. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. So we need to say with Isaiah, as he said in Isaiah 42, 8. As he wrote about God, God says here of himself, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not surrender or give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And in verse 11 of 48, Isaiah, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And so when we stop and we think about all these people who have gone before us, and we understand that, you know what? When people shared the glorious gospel of Christ, it always wasn't embraced. Many people gave up their lives to defend the gospel that we believe today. And when you stop and you think about that, we just take all this for granted. 
You know, even though we are radically corrupted, beloved, God takes us and he sovereignly purifies us of his purpose, of his plan, of his power. Even though we're radically enslaved to sin, he just supernaturally and sovereignly emancipates us, sets us free. And you know what? We can't do it. We're radically unable to do this thing called salvation. But you know what? Through his sovereign plan, he empowers us. He recreates us so that we can know him in a personal way. That we can know him in a way that should be a light to those who are still lost in their sin. That they can look at our lives and say, wow, you're different. Notice I said different, not weird. Big difference. We're called a peculiar people. That's right. Because we don't belong here. But you know what? We are here. And our goal is to, you know what? Let the, the light of Christ shine through us as much as we can, as often as we can. We're not perfect. But in God's eyes, we are. Isn't that a blessing? See, that's why, that's why he demands our glory. That's why we should freely give him our glory. And the idea that he saved us and that he will carry out this salvation even when, you know what, that sin creeps back in and you're struggling and you're realizing your self-worth has just gone bye-bye and you think, oh, God's done with me. No, he's not. No, he's not. His grace will continue in your life. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray today that as we just step back and realize that you are the glorious God that saved us. And Lord, you did this because you wanted to do it. And Father, so many times we have questions that go unanswered. But that just shows us how magnificent you are. And the idea that you have this personal relationship with us. It's not just a relationship that exists here in this building when we come here on a Sunday. I mean, you're with us 24-7. Through the power of the Spirit, you've equipped us to set aside the sin that so easily entangles us and to run this race that's before us, to set our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us clear away from the, our minds the clutter. Help us to put blinders on our eyes knowing that you will carry out your plan of salvation in our lives, that you will hold us fast, that you will allow us to be in your presence one day, free from the presence of sin. Lord, we, we long for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would just bless our time as we close with a song now. I pray for anybody here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, that they would understand their sinfulness before you. And Father, that you would convict them of that sin and they'd be willing to turn to the Savior. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When that prayer is prayed from a sincere heart, do you hear that prayer? You answer that prayer. And you'll transform them by, transform them by your grace. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.